Okay, welcome everybody. I'm not going to do an introduction because we're running a bit late. Um, but welcome, Paige and Helen. It's lovely to have you here and I'm going to give over to you and then we can chat afterwards. Okay. Baie dankie dat jy hier is. Ek heet jou baie welkom. And as all the Afrikaans wat jy van my ook krij. I just crapped myself. Are we doing this in Afrikaans? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did that especially to frighten you. <laughs> anyway, um, it was very, it's very sweet of Madri not to introduce us, but um, I am actually Helen Moffat. Um, I, am, I am a writer for my sins and also an editor, which I describe as the best job in the world. And when I say editor, I mean I work with authors Crushing their dreams. Yes, crushing their dreams. I was going to say crafting their dreams, but crushing also works. And this is Paige Nick, who is a successful novelist, collaborationist, and journalist. And we are talking about this little book she's written, which has taken Cape Town and, in fact, South Africa by storm. But I just want to get a sense from you. How many of you have actually read this book? Uh, okay, that's perfect. Then what we are not going to do is have this deep, meaningful conversation about the existential themes of the book and the way it looks, the way it reinvents Die Plaas Roman. Um, Thank goodness, I couldn't answer those questions. <laughs> um, instead, um, I'm, we're going to, I'm going to ask Paige more general questions so that you don't feel left out of a discussion in which we know the book rather well because... She wrote it and I edited it. So I'm going to ask Paige to start by telling us about how this book was born, where she got the idea from, and what happened to bring it about into a physical reality. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on a Friday afternoon. It's normally pub time, so it's appreciated that you're all, all here. Um, well, I was actually thinking when I was driving here that this is a pretty historic session that we're in. And I don't think there has ever been a session like this in South Africa in that I don't think there's been a panel where the person doing the interviewing was actually in the house when the book was written. <laughs> so that's pretty, pretty incredible for me. Um, this book is a funny little thing and such a precious thing to me, such a, you know, I don't have a husband or children by choice, but my babies are my children. So I wouldn't say that I have a favorite. You're not allowed to say that of your children. But this one's kind of right up there. Um, you know, I had just finished writing a book called Dutch Courage, which is coming out in May. And while I was finishing writing that book, I had this idea. And, you know, banting's become such a craze in South Africa. It's become so popular. You couldn't go anywhere, and you actually still can't go anywhere where people aren't talking about it. I'd be like at the chemist and the ladies in the queue behind me are talking about their statins. Or you'd be you know, at a dinner party and everyone's talking about who's eating carbs, who's not eating carbs. It's kind of a very pervasive thing, somehow, this cultish thing. And so I was somewhere with a friend, and I can't even remember who the friend was. I keep asking all my friends, was it you? Was it you? You're not getting any royalties, but was it you? And my friend uh, wanted to order a pasta, and she was looking, we were looking at the menu, and she said, oh, I could kill Tim Noakes. And I said, take a number, stand in line. And that kind of got this thought process going. I was like, how funny. So many people want to off this guy. So many people actually don't like this guy. He's a 
bleeding scientist. <laughs> he's not, you know, he's not really that contentious a human being. So how hilarious is it that people take it so seriously that there are actually people out there who actually literally want to kill him? And so that seed was planted in my head, and I thought, geez, this would make a really funny book. I think this would be really funny. I mean, how many people want to kill him? Let's kill him and then try and guess who killed him. So then I wrote the book, and uh, I went away. I pitched it to my publisher in February. I handed in my, my, pre my novel that I'd just finished, Dutch Courage, which is only coming out in May. It's all on its head. This whole thing's upside down. So I handed in the manuscript, and then I said, um, I've got this idea... This is it, and I can have it to you by, by June. I don't know, it must have been crazy. Was ethic. And he loved it, and he said, yes, go for it. So then I booked a house on Airbnb in Ireland, and I thought, there's no way I can do it here. Got to work, got to pay the rent. There's so many distractions, I just need to focus on this thing. Got a house in Airbnb in the middle of nowhere in Ireland. We were really very far. And Helen... Just cows. Yeah, cows. Us and cows. Cows and grass. Yeah. And... Um, and the odd pub, because wherever you are in Ireland, you don't have to look, throw a stone too far to hit a pub. And um, Helen came with me, and our co-author, uh, we actually, uh, Helen, myself, and Sarah Lotz write uh, a series of erotica. We write porn together in another, life in another life. So they came with, and they were both working on their own projects. And I locked myself away and wrote the book, and uh, it kind of fell out, I think. I've never seen anybody work so hard. I mean, Sarah and I would actually occasionally take an hour or two or a whole evening off. And uh, believe it or not, there came a day we were, um, we were in County Wicklow and we were about half an hour's drive from this beautiful tourist site, Glendalough or Glendalow. Sarah and I go off and we were like, Paige, you're an island. Aren't you going to come with us? No. I've got to finish this book. And then there was, we were, we were reaching the end of our time there. And there was this terrible hullabaloo from Paige's bedroom. She was shouting, I'm finished, I'm finished, I'm finished. And she came sort of skipping through, carrying her laptop, holding it up like it was a sort of a victory plate or something. I'm finished, I'm finished. We were like, that's not possible. We've never seen anybody write a book that fast. Well, I had a deadline. I, yeah. I knew... Look, I knew the book had to come out really fast. That was the biggest thing. I didn't know how long this would be a very topical issue. So I knew that it had to come out quite quickly, which is interesting because the book that I wrote before is only coming out afterwards, six months afterwards. So the timings are, are for me, the biggest, have been the biggest learnings on this, that you can do, you can do something if, you, if you're crazy enough. The other thing that's interesting about this is that although, although a number of publishers were really interested in this book, you decided to self-publish. Even though you have, a, you have a long history of conventional publishing. Yeah, I was kind of pushed into it. It wasn't my first choice, and I'm so glad. You know, sometimes things happen for a reason, and this is one of those things. Um, so the publisher that I pitched it to, uh, when I handed the manuscript in in June, July, he said, yeah, we can publish it in April, May 2016. And I was like, no, you have to bring it out for Christmas. It's finished, here. And he said, no, our lists are full, and Christmas is such a difficult time. All the bookstores know in advance who they're going to punt, Wilbur Smith and John Le Carre, you know, they know who their big sellers are. Um, and it's very hard to crack a Christmas list. And so I said, well... I need to figure this out. And I went away and contacted a publisher that I'd worked with before in my first novel in 2010. 
and she, they help authors to, it's called co-publishing. So I co-published mm -hmm. it with her. So yes. I pretty much, uh, it was an experiment for me. I self-published it, which was, which was a really nice experiment. Yes, hair-raising and nerve-wracking. Uh -huh. I think at the 11th hour on the 59th minute, we found a spelling mistake on the back cover. <laughs> These things happen. Uh, as you do. Um, so that's the, that's, that's the unusual story of how it was written. But it really was, it's, it's, it's a very, very easy read. It's so, but it's so deceptively easy that you don't realize how many serious themes are touched on when you read it. Um, it's a very funny book. It's a spoof. Oh, I think the next story you have to tell is, I mean, you kill off a real live breathing person on the first page, or is it the second page? Okay. How are you going to negotiate that? To make things even more complicated, I should explain that Tim Noakes, do I have to explain who Tim Noakes is to anybody in this room? I imagine you're here because you know who he is. Tim Noakes and I have had a professional and a, 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 a family friendship relationship for 30 years. He and I worked on um, the late, great Bob Woolmer's magnum opus together. We, after Bob's tragic death, we, we bought out his life's work, a book on cricket. So Tim and I go back a long way. Now, all of a sudden, my naughty porn star erotica co-author is writing a book in which she kills off one of my friends and colleagues and also one of the most controversial and well-known names on the first page. So what did you do about that little problem? For some reason, probably stupidity or ignorance, I didn't think about that so much until I'd already written the book. <laughs> I didn't, you know, there's that thing you should uh, ask for forgiveness, you know, afterwards, do something, what's the saying? Uh, Act now, ask for forgiveness later. Was kind of how it ended up. So I wrote the book, and when I gave it to my publisher, who was supposed to be my publisher, at the same time I got hold of Tim Noakes. Well, first I stalked him on social media to try and get hold of him. I needed his phone number, and nobody's really giving that out. Um, so I kind of got hold of people I thought might know somebody who might know him, and I finally got hold of the guy who's married to his daughter, a friend of the guy, John Dobson, a friend of the friend. So I finally got hold of him and said, please, I need to get hold of the prof. Do you have an email address for me that he might actually respond to, not like the big massive one? Finally, I got hold of him, and I phoned him. And I said, hi, you don't know me. My name is Paige Nick. I'm a writer. I write for the Sunday Times. I say that to try and give myself some, some, yeah, some credibility. <laughs> what I don't say is I write sex columns for the Sunday Times because that's not the kind of credibility I want him to know about. I'm hoping he doesn't go that far in the newspaper. Um, uh, so I'm a writer, and I said, I've written a book about you, and um, I'd really like to get your blessing. I, I, want, I love this book, and I want it to go into the world with good karma. I don't want any bad juju. And I also happen to know that your lawyers are bigger than my lawyers. So I kind of thought <laughs> I'd better ask for permission. And he said, oh, my dear, I would never get in the way of you publishing a book. Just please go ahead and publish the book. So I said, well, you die on the first page. You may want to read it before you give me your blessing. So then there was kind of quiet on the end of the phone, and, and I said, hello? <laughs> I wasn't sure if he'd put the phone down on me or not. And then he said, well, you better give me the manuscript. So I went and I met with him, and I gave him the manuscript, and then I didn't hear from him for six weeks, in which I plutzed every 
second day. You know when you, you, you wear out the refresh button on your email? And then the longer he took, I thought, you know, it's easy to say yes. You know, it's a two-hour, it's a one-day read. You pick it up and you can be done with it quite quickly. It's easy to say yes. But to say no, you have to formulate all your excuses. Why are you saying no? That takes longer. So I had this theory that the longer he took to get back to me, the more likely it was he was going to say no. <laughs> um, and finally he got hold of me and he said, Just come and see me. And then I was like, okay, now it's really no. No and a hiding. So, <laughs> like going to the principal's office. So I went to go see him and he was fine. He had three changes. Um, the one was the title originally was Who Killed Tim Noakes? And he said to him, his wife Marilyn was worried that some crazy out there would see it as a hint. And, uh, or as maybe a, an instruction from above. So he said, please, can you change the title? And the other was, I got his height and his weight wrong. And he said, um, my detractors will literally kill me. <laughs> he said, I'm not 91 kilos, I'm 81 kilos. <laughs> and if I was 91 kilos at my height, my BMI would be blah, 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 and I would be obese, and then it would all be very bad. So the, yeah, so he only had three changes, and he's been really... Really, really supportive. He's been, he did a shout on the cover. I was breathless till the end. And uh, yeah, he's been a real sport. And then I actually went to, you know, he's had this trial, this horrible hearing that's just gone on and on and on. And I went to go and watch him, to support him and watch him give his uh, evidence. And at the end, he emailed me and he said, thank you so much for coming. I feel like I've been murdered twice, once in your book and once in this trial. <laughs> so he has a sense of humor about being dead. Say again? He has a sense of humour about being dead. Yes, no. Um, look, I'd, I'd always known he had a sense of humour. And the irony was that I was overseas when all this was going on. And I'm like, Paige, I wrote a cricket book with the guy. And when she was going through the stage of chewing her nails, Tim was overseas. I think he was somewhere in... India. Yes, that's right. He was in India, Bangalore. And so I phoned Marilyn, his wife, and I said, has Tim read this manuscript yet? Oh, yes, she said. He chuckled all the way through. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. So I said, well, yes, and is he going to approve it? And she said, yes, we're just worried about the title. And then she then proceeded to spend 20 minutes telling me, you know, I really am worried that some nutcase is going to take him out one day. So I don't want anyone to get any ideas. And I thought, oh, is that a yes? Is that a no? But I was greatly comforted by this news that he had chuckled all the way through because it is a weep-makingly funny book. I don't know. It's, the humor works at so many levels. Because you haven't read it, I'm now going to ask Paige to read a passage, which, um, which, which includes, I suppose, one of the most groansome jokes. But uh, the, 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 the CEO, the CEO, either. But actually, no, start with CEO. So I'm just going to ask her to give you a little taster. So, one of the suspects, because I hate readings when you don't know what's going on, because then you sit and you're like, these words mean nothing to me. One of the suspects is the CEO of a company that called Snack Corp, and they sell bread, is their main uh, product. They also sell chips and any snack you can imagine. So, they've been particularly hard hit by banting. And actually, it's a fact. Uh, bread company sales are, are really down. Um, partly because of the drought, that's one of the reasons is in my research that I came across, but Banting's actually had a very tangible effect on sales of particular products, as you would imagine. So he's the CEO of this company that sells bread, and they have a real problem, 
and he's about to lose his job because the board of, the board of directors need a scapegoat for why things are being so, doing so badly. So he's come up with this plan, if he kills Tim Noakes, then um, maybe everyone will stop banting and then maybe sales of bread will go back up again. That's his, his big plan in his mind. So this is the CEO, it's a Thursday at 8.31 in the morning, and his life is unraveling, things are not going well for him. And he's actually secretly banting on the side, he's lost 10 kilos, but nobody's allowed to know because banting's illegal in Snack Corp. If they found out he was banking, they would, banting, they would um, fire him just for that. So he's in his office, 8.30 on a Thursday, we have a problem, Trevor. Gunter reached into his pockets and pulled out a plastic sachet. Gunter's the chairman of the board. Gunter reaches into his pocket and pulls out a plastic sachet. Have you seen this? Gunter handed Trevor the packet. Sure, Trevor said, turning it over in his hands. It was one of their products. Take a closer look, Trevor. Trevor turned it over again, not quite sure what he was supposed to be looking for. Notice anything missing, Gunter asked. I'm sorry, but no, I don't. Perhaps you should just tell me what's going on here, Gunter. Well, if you look closely, you'll notice that our standard disclaimer is missing from this particular package. Trevor spun the packet around and examined the back, squinting so he could read the small print without his glasses on. If you could just confirm one fact for me, please. Is it your responsibility to ultimately sign off on all packaging, is it not? Gunter went on. You know it is, Gunter. You wrote my contract. Well, our problem is that this product is missing the very important disclaimer that states that this product was made in a factory that uses nut products. Trevor took another look at the packet and felt his scrotum shrivel. I'm sure you'll agree with me that someone has to take responsibility for this gross error in judgment. The board had an emergency meeting last night, and I'm afraid we're going to have to let you go with immediate effect. That's nuts, Trevor said. I don't think it's nuts, and I resent your levity, Trevor. It's an incredibly serious matter. Do you realize we're going to have to recall the product? That's more than 30,000 individual units. Plus, all the ones we have in the warehouse at present will have to be reprocessed and repackaged. We'll also have to put out a public safety message in the press. Do you have any idea what this little error of yours is going to cost us, beside the damage that it's going to do to our corporate and brand image? It's pu a public relations disaster, Gunter spat. From where Trevor sat, he could see up the chairman of the board's nose. No, Gunter, he said patiently. I mean, it's literally a packet of assorted nuts. <laughs> of course it's made in a factory that uses nuts, because, well... They're nuts. <laughs> yes, we discussed that point in our board meeting at great length. However, we all agreed that this kind of egregious mistake could very well result in us being sued by some poor, unsuspecting consumer who happens to have a nut allergy. But Gunter, surely anyone with a nut allergy would know not to purchase, open, and then eat what is clearly a bag of nuts, Trevor stammered. Be that as may, you really left us no choice, intoned Gunter. And unbelievably, in one of those truth is stranger than fiction things, I was traveling last year, and shortly after I edited this book, I went to the States, and I bought a packet of plain roasted almonds. And there was a huge warning label on the packet. This packet of nuts was made in a factory that may have contained nuts or traces of nuts. I actually photographed it for Paige and sent it to her, as in, you know, you think it's a, you, you think it's a funny joke? Over here in the US of A, this is actually true. Packets of nuts have nut warning on them. Anyway, but um, one of the lovely things about this book, um, how many of you use social media? How many of you are on Facebook? 
quite a, quite a few of you in Twitter. Quite a few of you. So you're, you're very aware of the social media. One of the funniest things about this books is the, um, the Facebook banting support pages, the fictional ones. Do you want to talk a bit about that? So that was the most fun. So the second I decided I was going to write this book, a friend said to me, you know there are all these banting Facebook pages? And I, I didn't know, and I went to go look. I couldn't believe, I mean, some of them have 250,000 members. These things are massive. 10, 15 of them, and they all have in the tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And the conversation just goes on and on. I don't know when these people have time to bant. They're so busy on the Facebook groups talking about banting. And so I started to follow all these groups, and they're hilarious. They just naturally, somehow, social media breeds this certain fury in people. And so they're really funny, and I, I remember one exchange. This woman had posted a picture of a, a Whopper burger, not a big, uh, from, what, are they, what, who does Whoppers? Burger King, thank you. Um, he, she posted a picture of a Whopper and she said, I fell off the wagon today, I ate a Whopper, I feel disgusting, and I hate myself. And what then continued was this barrage of abuse. It was really funny. So people attacked her. How can you go, you call yourself a banter, you suppose the Facebook page is called Banting for Life, not Banting just for today. They really like came down on her. Then there were the people who supported her. Shame, leave her alone. She realizes she's done the wrong thing. And how can you be so mean? And then other people, you're enabling her. If you tell her it's all right to eat a burger, then next time she wants to eat a burger, then she's going to think it's all right to eat a burger. And you're not helping her. And then people saying to the admin, you should remove her from the group because she posted a picture of a whopper and that made me want a Whopper. So she's affecting my, my banting sobriety by posting a picture of a burger. And this is like four days of just people shouting at each other, being mean and supportive and helpful. And somebody saying, instead of a burger next time, you could try this. Or sometimes when I feel like I need a burger, then I put an elastic band on my hand. And when I feel like it, then I snap. I mean, people are crazy, you know? <laughs> so these uh, Facebook groups fuel a huge uh, sense of comedy in me. For me, this whole thing, everyone asked what was the point of the book, but the whole thing for me is all about comedy. I need to find the comedy in everything. And I find the comedy in how seriously people take this, depending on which side you're on, if you're on the pro or the con side. So yeah, these, these Facebook groups fueled, fueled it big time for me. So I created a character, one of the suspects, Maureen. She's a widow and she's quite lonely. And she joins a Facebook, she joins a Facebook banting group and she gets down to her size that she wants to be, but then she starts to miss people supporting her. You know, she felt like a real clanship. You know, she said, I've lost four kilos. Yay, people put dancing icons and, you know, people congratulated her, it gave her real meaning. So then she starts to create fake characters um, who, who are also going on their journey. So she creates like a black man who's very overweight and likes his beer and likes his shisanyama. And so then she creates this character and she logs on as this character and comments as him. Um, so, so that fueled for me a lot of the characters. And she's a suspect because she starts to sell Tim Noakes approved, she wants to sell Tim Noakes approved meal plans. They're not really Tim Noakes approved. So if he's dead, she can get away with selling these meal plans. And she's quite addicted to the high of it. So that's her, that's, that's her alibi or her motive. Yes. It's, it, it follows the classic. It, is, it was Paige's first attempt at a crime thriller. I suppose what you and I have in common is that we're both easily bored. 
because this is Page's first thriller or crimi or crime novel. Um, but before that, she'd written Chicklet, she'd written Erotica, she's written, um, she's written a column, and uh, she, Dutch Courage is, is quite a serious book in some ways. It's a light-hearted treatment of a serious topic, which is quite different to anything else that she's written. But this, she follows the classic formula of somebody kills Tim Noakes, but there are about 12 suspects. And you follow all of their stories, and it's like all that of them. Cluedo. Remember that it, game, Cluedo. Yes, it's exactly that. It's kind of like it could be so and so. It could be so and so. And then the fun was in constructing all of their motives. Every single one of them's got motive. And then, um, sort of, the fun is also in that kind of detective thriller thing of deliberately misleading the author. And then, of course, inserting jokes. Well, the author's misled page. already, misleading the I reader. I pardon, misleading the reader, yes. <laughs> now, the author actually knew what was going on right from the beginning, although there's a lovely, <laughs> lovely twist at the end. Definitely we can't talk about the ending because there will be total spoiler alerts. Um, something I wanted to uh, uh, talk about was that it's a very South African book, and not just because we seem to have embraced the kind of pro or con Tim Noakes or pro or con Banting Fervor. But in the, in the layer of characters and in the, because literally the, 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 the cast of characters ranges from Tim Noakes himself to a former publisher, the CEO of a bread company, um, this lonely little old widow who gets addicted to the high of being praised on Facebook for um, losing weight. And then she creates all of these sub-characters. So, and you become quite invested in these characters that don't exist, created by a fictional character, created by <laughs> the author. But um, they also include two hijackers from Googs, who are my favorite characters in the books. And one of the loveliest light things about this book is the way um, it's written from this perspective of so many different levels of South African life. And it's done with humor and with respect. And um, every, nobody is sacred. Every single cow gets a sharp poke in the ribs. Well, I like to do that. Yes. You, and, and you're very good at that. Um, shall I read a little bit about the taxi yes. driver? Okay. Well, I struggled with this chapter. It's actually the only chapter that, that didn't come very... Um, easily and it never felt right to me. Um, I couldn't get to it. I knew there was a joke and sometimes Sarah, my, our co-author, she said, she'll say when we're writing together, she'll say, did you write that whole chapter just to get in one punchline at the very end? <laughs> so I, I like to find a joke in things and I, I couldn't find it in this and, and Helen and I had been sharing it. This was once uh, I had a first draft down. Helen and I had been sharing it between us and Helen said to me, let me have a bash at solving it, and, um, and she did, and I think she did an amazing job. I essentially think you wrote this chapter, <laughs> of the structure, of the, the manuscript. She rewrote it, but um, this is, I must say that everybody talks about the loneliness of the writing life, and because I was, I, I am a recovering academic, this is how I describe myself, I was used to collaborative projects. So I've done quite a lot of co-authors, but, uh, you know, co-authored books. But for Paige, writing erotica together with me and Sarah was her first collaborative process, and it, which is very hard, but it's also enormous fun. And it breaks that terrible loneliness 
And once, once that loneliness is gone, you can't ever go back to it. So I think from now on, you know, I will always give scenes I'm struggling with to close friends to write and vice versa. But I just wanted to read you this simply because it's such a South African scene. She says that I wrote it. Actually, I only wrote a few paragraphs, but, um, and, and she did the structure. This is our friendly CEO, the same one who was having the trouble with the nuts. Um, don't turn around, Trevor quavered. Don't look at me. Just keep driving, mate. What's wrong with your voice? asked the taxi driver. It's my accent. It's Cockney, Trevor said. You're from a place called Cock? No, it's... Never mind. Look, they told me at the taxi rank that if I needed something taken care of, you the man, innit? I should explain, Trevor puts on a terrible fake Cockney accent whenever he's trying to commission somebody to do something illegal. Trevor's voice wobbled. It had been bad enough, a white man wandering around a taxi rank late at night with a plastic bag full of cash, asking if there was someone who sorted out problems. The taxi driver he had been directed to certainly looked the part. He was huge with what looked like ritual scars on his face, probably some prison gang thing. I can try to help you, brother, but you need to tell me more, said the taxi driver. I have the money here. 20 up front, 20 later when it's all been taken care of, plus all the information I could get me hands on about this person, name, number, and so on, the one that needs taken care of. But there's a small problem, Trevor blurted out. What now? The taxi driver looked over his shoulder again. Please keep your eyes on the road, Trevor yipped, forgetting his accent. The taxi driver rolled his eyes, then turned to face front again. They were driving slowly down a deserted road near the airport. A lone pedestrian tried to wave them down, then shouted something insulting as they barreled past. What problem? the driver asked. I need this done urgently, sooner the better. But the bloke involved, he may not be so easy to track down. I haven't been able to get hold of him on his cell phone. Also, well, uh, he's in the same industry as you. He drives a taxi? Uh, uh, no, not that industry, the other one taxi driver whistled. Also, uh, this problem guy, he might be in prison, but you've got connections inside, right? Trevor passed the man his plastic bag with a shaking hand. The driver used his knees to steer as he flipped through the notes. It's all there, Trevor said. You'll get the rest when the thing has been done, with a small bonus if you get it done within the next 24 hours. My pager number is written on a slip of paper with the cash. Once you find him and take care of him, Call me from his phone. Then I'll know for sure you've done it. That makes sense? There was a long silence. Then, we have an agreement, rumbled from the front. The taxi driver dropped Trevor at the airport, international drivers. Then he drove back to Kailitcher, praying for forgiveness for his sins. The stupid white man thought he could hire any old taxi driver to kill someone, and all because of that terrible Diwani thing when some Tsotsi taxi drivers had murdered a poor sweet Indian girl on her honeymoon, giving good taxi drivers everywhere a bad name. So perhaps God would forgive him for taking the stupid Mlungu's money. He'd nearly driven off the road when he'd seen the fat wad of 200 grand notes, but then he'd realized that Jesus was answering his prayers. He'd be able to get a new roof for Sis and Dewey's crash for the orphans. And maybe he and the others of the Tabernacle Gospel House of Prayer could take the children to the sea for the day, fill up their tummies with fish and chips. And with whatever was left over, he could buy some textbooks. For the prisoner's rehab program he ran, 
he began to sing, Hallelujah, I thank you, Lord, for stupid white men. <laughs> it's quite hard in this day and age to write about South Africa in a way that rings true and is also light-hearted. So that was one of the fun things about this book. Yeah, you were talking about the hijackers, and they were my favorite characters to write. So in the very beginning, uh, the prof gets offed and the ambulance comes to take the body away and while the ambulance is driving, it gets hijacked. So these two guys, Taubo and Pupsak, hijack the ambulance and they don't realize there's a body in the back because he's died en route, so they turned off the blue lights. So they, they think they've just got a, an ambulance that they can sell, but they've got an ambulance and a body. And, and then eventually they discover it's quite a well-known body. Much harder to get rid of a well-known body than it is to get rid of a, some, you know, and an umlungu and a white body than to just, you know. So, uh, so they were my favorite characters. And in fact, when I first started writing, they were going to be tiny. They were going to be there in the beginning when they, I needed the body to disappear so that, uh, so that you didn't know how he died and so that I could then plant all the suspects. So I needed the body to disappear, so I thought, oh, South Africa. It's either something to do with load shedding or hijacking or something like that. <laughs> so, so I had the body, the body hijacked, basically. So they were just going to be there in the beginning of the book and the end of the book uh, when the body came for the autopsy. And, um, and I just loved them so much. They inveigled their way in, and they've got a real starring role. So they, they come back throughout the book trying to get rid of a body, which is... Um, Everybody keeps telling me that they are their favorite characters. And now, of course, we, we, we've got demands for a sequel that star Tabo and Pupsuck. We also think Pupsuck is the best name for a character ever in the history of the name of characters. But, I was um, thinking I could maybe do Somebody Kills Jacob Zuma. But there are so many suspects, the book would just never end. It would be, it would be war like War and Peace. <laughs> peace and Peace. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask um, shall we tell them that there's a giveaway? Sure. We are just actually <laughs> giving yeah, we are actually giving away um, a book. Actually wait, now I've, I've done this I've done this the wrong way around. Let me rather ask a question. Is there anybody here who belongs to a banting face group? Congratulations! You won a copy of the book. You certainly deserve it. Which one do you belong to? Ah, uh, yeah. They're crazy, right? Enjoy us. Uh, oh, do you belong to a lot of them? You see, people become really addicted to these groups. It's been really fascinating to me. Huh? My pleasure. Enjoy it. My pleasure. <laughs> but why? Hold on. <laughs> now, I want to hear that story. Yes. <laughs> but he's not banting, but he's watching what you bant together. Well, I'm in that school. You know, when I went to go, it's an interesting story, when I went to go meet the prof the first time and give him the manuscript, he came to fetch me in reception, uh, went to the Sports Science Institute and waited for him, my best behavior. You feel like you're sitting outside the headmaster's office. And he came to fetch me and he walked down the corridor. My hello. Walked down the corridor. And as we walked down the corridor, a lady came with a, pushing a trolley, like a kitchen trolley. And it was full of the leftovers of a party. 
muffins and cakes and, uh, and sweets and everything. And he said, as she came past, he said, that's not from, uh, from, the, from here. So I said, oh, okay. So no, no. He said, really, I, pr- I promise you, that's not from here. So I said to him, it's really, it's fine. He said, no, no, I need you to know that the kitchen is on this floor. The kitchen for the whole thing is on this floor. So that must have come from another department, and they're just wheeling the leftovers through this department. So I said to him, Prof, it's, re- it's really fine. So he said, no, come, I'll show you. He made me, we went round through the corridor, took me to the kitchen to show me that the kitchen's on that floor and that it actually wasn't one of his things. And I think he's under a huge amount of pressure. He can't go, he can't go off of what he's doing anywhere because people are watching him. So I think it's that thing, that people are watching. And you know, I also, I've been banting since I started, uh, when I started the research, I decided I'm type two diabetic. And um, it's kind of made for people who type two diabetic or insulin resistance. So I decided to try it. I also needed to do the research. I didn't want people to think, because I poke a lot of fun. I'm quite, you know, and sometimes when you poke fun, it can feel mean and I, I hate that. I never want to be mean. So I wanted people reading it to know that I, I'm not doing it as poking fun at you who do who takes banting seriously, and I'm not poking fun at you who hates pan- banting, I'm actually poking fun at all of you. So I, want to, I needed to do it from the inside, I needed to try it. So I started banting, and so when you tell people that you bant, if they see you eating a chocolate-covered peanut, jeez, you out of there. People are quiet, people have massive opinions about this thing. Mm-hmm. And then I address a lot of that in the book, why I think it's such a cultish thing. I've also put myself into the book, um, not so carefully hidden. One of the characters is me um, with my whole story because, um, yeah, because, you know, we all have our dieting issues. Well, not we all. Some of you are luckier. Yes, I'm just going to read everybody the, the dedication. Um, this book is dedicated to anyone who has ever struggled to lose weight and knows how murderous it can be. And, uh, and of course, this book is just... It, it, it's something that I think almost, un, unless you're an extraordinarily lucky, uh, uh, is it endomorph or is it or a mesomorph? You know, the, you know the, the people, I've got a few of them. My friend nodding, Donald weighed 78 at the age of 18 and now he's 58 and he still weighs 78 kilograms. You know, I want to bang his head against a brick wall, but uh, these things happen. But with rare exceptions, I think that's one very human dilemma, especially if you're middle class. Um, that you have struggled at some point in your life to lose weight. And the book sort of touches on that very human dilemma as well. Yeah, I wanted to talk to people who don't care about banting. I wanted, it was very important to me that the book was enjoyable to whether you like bant, whether you're pro or against, whether you struggle with your weight or whether you don't. Yeah, it was, it's, it's a very human and humane book in that it deals, it, 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 it pokes fun at and it makes you giggle at all of these human dilemmas. It makes you laugh at everybody across the South African spectrum, from ambulance drivers to hijackers to professors to CEOs. But um, there is that thing of, which is, which is a feature of uh, Paige's writing. It's very easy when you're a humor writer to resort to the cheap um, option of laughing at people, as opposed to laughing with people. And it's a very dangerous trap to fall into. You know, there are some writers I know who are hilariously funny, but you know where you slightly hate yourself for laughing? Because you know they're being cruel. You know they are taking the mickey 
out of people who can't defend themselves. And there are several strategies as a humor writer that you can use to get around them. And Paige, I've been following, I started reading Paige's column shortly before I met her several years ago. And what I like is that she, she, and she was writing a sex column, but she went for the ridiculous every single time. The ridiculous, the fallible, the human, um, all of the ways in which we slip on banana peels. But she, what she did was that she laughed at everybody, and the last person she always laughed at in all of her columns was herself. And that I find a very, very endearing character. I now have that as an absolute rule for my so-called humorous or comic writers. You have to poke fun, you have to be an equal opportunity pun, fun poker. Help. Yep. That's not something yep, an erotica writer should say. That's it. Equal um, opportunity fun poker. We'll put that in our next porn. We'll put that out in equal opportunity fun poker. But you also have to take the mickey out of yourself. You have to be able to, if you're going to mock other people, you must also mock yourself. And that's something that I particularly like about this book. Um, it's what makes it human. Gosh, you know, we could go on talking about it all afternoon. I realize we haven't even spoken about Frank. I think we must talk about Frank simply because you use Frank to address something that's very close to all of your hearts, not just banting, otherwise you wouldn't be here, but the state of local South African fiction. Yeah, so Frank's one of the suspects. He's a publisher, actually he's an ex-publisher. He used to be a publisher, but he lost his job, and now he works at a chain store, books chain store, packing shelves. With a name, something like expensive books. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and um, he lost his job because he turned down the real meal revolution. So when Tim Noakes brought the book to him and tried to sell it to him, he said, ah, it's just a fad. Nobody will buy it. And then the book went on to sell 200,000 copies, and he lost his job. He got fired. Uh, his wife left him and took the house. And so now he's got the shitty job at an exclusive books and he's not very happy, and he's quite bitter, and he's very angry with the prof. He's that guy who turned down the Beatles' first album, that record producer. So he's very angry, and he's very angry about the states of South African fiction, as we all are. He's angry that we don't get the spotlight in bookstores. You know, when you walk into a bookstore, you don't see South African books. They're kind of huddled in the back. So he's, he, he's my inner booky, South African, angry person. So in each of, the, uh, each of the suspects, there's a little bit of me, I think. So in Maureen, I'm a little bit of a social media addict. She's a bit of a social media addict. In Frank, it's my angry South African books vibes. He's always sort of sticking local fiction in among the kind of the... Dan Browns and the John and he gets Grisham. really angry because people come in and ask him for a recommendation of a book and he'll recommend a great South African book and they'll go, do you have that Fifty Shades of Grey that everyone's talking about? And he'll go, yes, it's over here, come on. And then he angrily sells them books that he doesn't want to sell them. He only wants to sell them South African fiction. So that was a lot of, they were, everyone was a lot of fun to write. I kind of, uh, it's a multi-person narrative, so each chapter is a different suspect, so... I kind of, it was nice to get back to each character each time. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the obvious ones, and this is the one that I was worried about most from a legal point of view, is um, the co-authors. Because you can imagine if this book is like a license to print money, and there are a whole lot of co-authors, but Tim Noakes is the big star, and something happens to him, then who stands to 
benefit. So I was sitting there. That, that yeah, that scared me because I was going to ask Tom, uh, Tim. I asked the prof for his permission, but I didn't ask the co-authors. And so one of the suspects, one of the group of suspects, are his co-authors. Um, and somebody, I was at the hearing, and somebody sidled up to me and said, "Did you hear the co-authors are suing each other?" You know, there's a lot of like. So I don't think I. I think in some of this is based a little bit on stories that I'd heard. I knew that there'd been a publisher who had turned down Real Meal Revolution in real life. Was it uh, Jeremy? Was it Jonathan Ball? I had thought I maybe it was remember. Jonathan Ball had turned it down, but I knew there was a publisher in South Africa who must be kicking themselves daily. There were daily. quite a few, in fact. And, um, and I knew that the co-authors were a little bit geeky with each other because some of them you see together all the time and others you like have disappeared completely. Um, David Greer, yep. who's one of the authors, you never hear his name. I bet you uh, nobody here, if I had to ask you who the authors, that would have been a good question for the giveaway. Who are the authors of The Real Meal Revolution? You definitely know Tim Noakes. You maybe know Sally Ann Creed or John O'Proudfoot because they have a bit of a social media following, but that's it. So I knew that the authors were getting at each other. So I wrote these imaginary authors and I made uh, four of them and I made women and men and some living in Joburg. I tried to make them very different because I didn't want to be sued. <laughs> I didn't want the co-authors to think that I was taking the piss. But I do think that reality is quite more than we believed when, when I wrote the book and when we edited it. I do think the reality is quite close to actually what's happened in the book, that the authors don't particularly like each other, the co-authors, just through attrition and through what's happened in the last mm. couple of years. And, you know, I think there must be a lot of animosity if you write a book or are very involved in a book and everybody else gets limelight. It's so much work writing a book. It's like, it's oh. so much work and so much agony and so much of you. Years of knowledge, years of everything you know, then to be looked over must be brutal. So I can imagine mm. that that's kind of more true than we Yes, think. And, and, and this is why Marilyn Noakes was a little bit worried about the title. <laughs> she, um, because also, you know, uh, one of the things that I know as an editor of both fiction and non-fiction, I actually started out as an, I started out as an academic and then in one of my many sort of my first attempts to run away from universities, I went to go and work as an academic editor. And then slowly I moved from there into literature, uh, to literary fiction and then to genre fiction. And one of the first rules I had to learn was, it's called variously the Don, John Lanchester rule of fiction or the Mike Nickel rule, which is in non-fiction, anything can happen and does. In fiction, you're far more constrained because there are all sorts of things that are just not plausible. So the things that you imagine, um, you can't often write about. Well, truth is stranger than fiction. Often something will happen and I've put stuff in a manuscript before that's actually happened to me, not this manuscript, but in a previous book and my editor said that it's just completely unplausible. Impl implausible? implausible? Unplausible. Let's go with unplausible. It's completely unplausible just to irritate her. I know it'll it drive her never crazy. Happen. <laughs> yeah. It's completely unplausible and I go, it's not. It's totally what happened to me. And they go, no, we're not putting it in the book. I go, but it's true. It happened. We're not putting it in the book. Yep. No, I do that a lot as an editor. So, but with this book, we, 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 we just let it all hang out. We let all the implausibles happen. Yeah, um, we could. And, um, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if more and stranger things don't happen in real life. Well, let's hope they don't happen to Prof Noakes. I was yeah. also nervous if something would happen to him. Like within the time span of me bringing out this book, I would feel terrible <laughs> if something actually did happen to him. And there I am like jokey jokey about yes. it. We
Thank you. Thank you, Helen.